Welcome to Credo's Biblical Theology Podcast, where biblical theology is placed in conversation with the great tradition for the benefit of theologians, preachers, and the church. Uh, Our guest today is Ched Spellman. He serves as the Associate Professor of Biblical and Theological Studies at Cedarville University and is, more importantly, of course, a a happy husband and father. Um, Today, we're going to be discussing the role of backgrounds uh, and how it plays, uh, what kind of role it should play in the interpretational process. So, Chad, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate the invite. I normally ask, my first question uh, is normally, what were your first biblical theological uh, thoughts that you can remember? Like, when did it all kind of come together? But for you, I'm going to adjust it just slightly. Uh, what? When do you note your first canon conscious thoughts, Ched? When did those first happen? When did the uh, kind of the points touch together and go, hey, this whole thing um, is God's word and it speaks to itself. You know, it helps us to interpret itself. When did that when did that happen? Okay, thanks. Yeah, I was uh, a little caught off guard here, you know, thinking about uh, what my first thought was uh, here or <laughs> Like man, that's <laughs> your very first ahead. thought. Yeah, <laughs> when I was a young warthog. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I think for the you know, aside from my uh, the days of my youth, I think one of the uh, early moments of thinking about uh, the significance of the the Bible as a whole uh, came uh, when I was in high school. Uh, for I grew up in a, a church family uh, and. Uh, the Bible was uh, read and uh, valued. Um, so I, uh, as I was growing up, uh, kind of knowing, having some Bible knowledge. Uh, but in high school, I had a you know a mentor uh, during high school. He led some of our uh, Disciple Now uh, groups. And he started challenges to think about, you know, God's glory and ultimate purpose. And that's one of the first times uh, theologically that I remember thinking, uh, about the bigness of God. Um, and so that was uh, a paradigm shift for me, uh, thinking about the concept of God's glory and how it relates to God's love uh, and the nature of the gospel. Um, so that was a you know, a watershed moment for me, thinking about the Bible as God's word of address, uh, speaking to some of those uh, big picture realities. Um, and then as, uh, you know, alongside of that, thinking, uh, you know, coming to, uh, recognize the value of that kind of thinking. Uh, and then in, when I started theological training at seminary, thinking about some of the issues of hermeneutics, connect, started being able to connect the bigness of God to the bigness of the scriptures uh, and the way that they, uh, the way that the scriptures uh, fit together as a whole and how that is not divorced from or disconnected from uh, the the bigness of God and the greatness of God's glory. Um, so that was those two two moments of thinking about things like God's glory in high school, and then thinking about the beauty uh, and the literary beauty of the scriptures. And when those things kind of came together very early, and when I was a cage stage uh, first first semester MPIV student, yeah, um, that was one of the most exciting things for me is seeing that uh, that those were not at odds, uh, but that they. Um, they work together um, and they relate to my Christian life as well. That's great. Um, okay, so a little bit, sort of the same thing, same development here, but is, do you understand, so your your early work on canon consciousness, right, um, toward a canon conscious reading of the Bible, 
Is that in your thinking, are you doing biblical theology? And I recognize this has to do with how we define definitions and those sorts of things. But the spirit of biblical theology, is that like a subcategory of it? Or would you say, no, this is just straight up biblical theology. What talk to us about that for just a second. What's your what's your hope whenever you're encouraging people to read scripture with a with a level of canon consciousness? Uh, sure. Yeah. In, in some ways, the my dissertation and my first work, uh, thinking about toward a canon conscious reading of the Bible, uh, brings together several elements. One, canon studies and some of the debates that uh, relate to the way that the canon formed, uh, but that also tries to connect uh, to the discussions about hermeneutics, about how the canon functions. Um, and so if you have a basically exegetical definition of biblical theology, something like uh, the study of the whole Bible on its own terms. Uh, so yeah. in some ways it's related to exegesis of a particular text, but at a different scale. So what would it mean to like the meaning of a book uh, or a section or a subsection of the scriptures uh, or thinking about the message of the Testament as a whole and how they relate? Um, so caught up into that is uh, the idea of uh, the biblical canon and its effect on reading. Um, so in, in some ways, I would say that the idea of canon or canon consciousness uh, is, is an issue that is connected to canon, the canon formation discussion, how the, how the Bible came to be. But one of the burdens of that book or that approach is being able to connect the uh, composition of biblical texts. Um, to the reading of biblical text um, and seeing the, the concept of canon as a way to bring those together. Um, so in, in some ways you could call it a, a canonical approach to the discipline of biblical theology okay. or um, to say, to think about canon studies or the idea of canon consciousness as, a, as an avenue to get at some of the central biblical theology questions like how does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament? Um, so in that sense, um, one of the things that the, the kind of just a snapshot of the broader argument of that idea is that if it's possible that the biblical authors wrote in light of other biblical texts um, in a burgeoning collection of biblical texts and the initial readers of the scripture uh, and the initial community that's receiving these texts, they also uh, receive these texts in light of a canonical collection then it gives warrant, or at the very least, it um, creates a path for contemporary readers to read with that same uh, mindset. So in some ways, again, that's a, that's a historical question about canon formation, but it also strikes at the heart of what the biblical theology task is, which right. is thinking about how the Bible fits together now and how it how it speaks uh, how it speaks of Christ. I would also just note your your other book for the audience as well. I mean, you've got a number, but. Um the one holy book, uh, how the Bible came to be and why it matters. I think you're getting at some of these same issues and, and even developing them. And so would encourage the audience to check those out also. Well, we're here mostly, uh, to talk about backgrounds, um, in the interpretive process. And so let's start off just by asking the question are, are all so-called elements of, of quote background, right? And, and I'm even that term is, is a little bit, I, I searched for what do you, what do you use to get at things behind the text to help you interpret right. the text, uh, how it's commonly uh, featured, are they all created equally? And we're, we're thinking here about anything from archaeology, epigraphy, and inscriptions, or even 
like cultural texts like a Enuma Eilish or, or the Moabite Stone, the Gilgamesh Epic, other creation myths, uh, these sorts of things. And, and I would even add, just to, to get the full gamut here, would would we mean backgrounds by something like reading the Septuagint? Right? You're, you're working on Jeremiah or something difficult like that, and then you're, you're looking at the Septuagint. So are all backgrounds created equally? How would you uh, assess that and then give us sort of a, uh, a baseline for how to understand this subject? Oh, well, thanks for starting with uh, just a simple question. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, this is, this is a great question, and you made the mistake of uh, letting me know this beforehand, so I yeah. prepared uh, some, a few talking points here. So this will probably be my longest answer, uh, but um, yeah, I think this is an important question for a variety of reasons, because uh, it strikes at the heart of what we're doing, um, and attempting to find the best resources um, to do the task that we want to do, which is read scripture uh, and read it well. Um, this, this particular question, I think uh, we, I'll start here with the broader prior question about the relative value of history and history for biblical and theological studies. Um, so not just background information, but just the concept of history. Uh, in many ways, I think because we're studying an ancient text, uh, in the text that was passed along in specific communities, we're inextricably drawn into a type of study that involves the use of history. So even a strictly textual focus is going to require a bit of historical investigation that's that's oftentimes hidden or invisible uh, to most readers. Um, so in this sense, exegesis itself, uh, the idea of it, attempting to understand an ancient author's intention. I think this is also a, a historical act. So in that sense, um, all, all study of the Bible in one sense is drawing upon um, history. But I think sometimes what's, what's sometimes neglected is the hermeneutics of history. Um, so I think the hermeneutics of history is an ever-present requirement as well because uh, of the uh, history is required for biblical interpretation. So some, sometimes we're quick to debate the value of history uh, and neglect the attendant question about the meaning of history. And so that's kind of uh, the, the first point is um, a lot of times the discussion about historical background information is a, a pro or con to whether it's valuable. Um, but once we say it's valuable, sometimes the follow-up question is not asked about the meaning of the historical information in general and then how it's, how it's used. So a comment, to, just to illustrate, a common move in a hermeneutical textbook is something along the line, an evangelical uh, hermeneutical textbook would be something along the lines of uh, the incarnation happened in real history. Therefore, history is absolutely ne necessary. Um, and this kind of assertion is usually motivated by an important apologetic task that like the history, the historicity of biblical events or demonstrating that uh, what the Bible says really happened like what happened really happened, or like the historical reliability of the life of Jesus, uh, et cetera. But once the importance of history is established, uh, it's sometimes left at that assertion, history is important. Therefore, historical background information is relevant always and also uh, in the interpretive task of reading biblical texts. So in one sense, um, it's a common move uh, to in the, introductory section of a, of a hermeneutics textbook to mention that because uh, the gospel happened in real time and real history and the Bible is about these events, uh, historical study is important. 
but then the use of historical background information is often left uninterrogated. So a concern I have in this basic orientation is not that history is important or significant, uh, but as I mentioned a second ago, the way in which history is utilized. I think that's where the the discussion um, the, the discussion needs to be had in that sense. So this the subsequent hermeneutical element of the task is often neglected. Um, so I'll just give one example from uh, my notes about this. Here are two statements from relatively recent textbooks. Uh, one says, uh, sometimes the nature of ostensible uh, background is itself disputed, and in any case, historical background information should not be allowed to control the exegesis of the New Testament. That's from Carson and Moon. Okay. And then the New Testament and Antiquity uh, textbook, uh, one of the statements they make in their intro is, the context of antiquity should control how we understand the New Testament today. So in that sense, um, both recognizing the value of history, but qualifying it in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in some ways I have uh, some concerns uh, about uh, the use of history, but they kind of orient around that uh, starting point of saying that the use of historical research is necessary, uh, but it, uh, but not sufficient for the task of studying a, the, the message of a biblical book, which is an act of written communication. Right. And so we can talk about the, um, um, the, the second part of your question. Uh, what are the cautions? Like, what are the cautions I have? And I'll just, I'll just mention some of these and we can follow up uh, or come back to these uh, if you want. But think, when we're thinking about like the different types of background information, uh, one of the things that I think is hidden when we don't think about the, uh, hermeneutics of historic history and historical reconstruction is that historical background information is fragmentary. Yeah. Um, oftentimes historical reconstruction is by itself, uh, by its nature all over the place. Uh, so, I mean, many of our archeological digs are actually like trash heaps. Uh, and that's one of the reasons it's preserved is because the, you know, the, the oxyrhynchus dump or something, uh, is created the conditions that allowed, uh, some of these artifacts to survive. Um, but I guess the broader point here about the hermeneutics of history is that most historical background information is also a kind of text that has to be interpreted. Right. You have to select, reconstruct, and interpret. Uh, and then the question is, you know, how do you know when to stop? Um, right. So, like, if you're talking to an a-, a pastor or a student and they're saying, well, I'm going to use historical background information to understand this text, Usually what they mean, because you could ask a follow-up question like, well, where is that? Where is that historical background information? Usually what they're going to do, or what we mean when we say that, is we're going to read a textbook about it. Right. Or we're going to read a, um, a resource that is telling us about the historical background information. And sometimes sometimes uh, readers of the scripture, when they're doing their study, they're thinking about that as, you know, oh, this is just the facts, you know, give me just the facts, ma'am, and then uh, I'll interpret them here. Not recognizing that those, uh, any um, introductory textbook or any uh, work that's giving us kind of a sense of the background of a uh, of the Bible or the ancient world is also a uh, interpretation of a whole bunch of things like artifacts, inscriptions, coins, uh, text, all those things have been brought together by a particular author and interpreted in, 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 biblical, in biblical studies. 
that has been uh, from a variety of fields been brought together and packaged um, for a, for a reader, for us to uh, understand uh, biblical text. Uh, but I guess the broader point that I'm uh, kind of circling around is that that information has been brought together by an interpreter. Right. Um, and so sometimes we don't recognize that historical background information is diverse, but also uninterpreted. It's, it has to be interpreted uh, as well. You know, so those are some of the uh, starting points of the value of history, but also some of the cautions about uh, the use of historical and uh, background information that uh, that come to mind uh, when I think about this this question. Yeah, yeah, and I I just want to highlight uh, even your comment of the the backgrounds themselves, what, be it whatever you were mentioning, right? This broad array of possibilities of what we mean behind background mm-hmm. is that they themselves have to be interpreted, right? So you're you're right. um, or you are receiving them, especially if you find yourself listening to this podcast. You're an undergrad student or you're an MDiv student, and you're <clears throat> you're receiving a, something that has been collated itself, you know, uh, and they are accentuating right. in a textbook and they're referring to something or this is the backgrounds of, you know, all the people, all the Canaanite peoples that, that are going to show up in, uh, in in judges or something. It's like, well, I mean, you're receiving right. someone else's um, in the best way possible. It is their rewarmed stuff. It's their selected stuff. And so they're angled in, right. in a, and, and that's what writing is. So I think that's really helpful. Yeah. Well, so to bring it down on the ground, next, next question, let's say you're preaching a text. Uh, you've been asked by a church somewhere, you know, near you to, to preach and, and you're just jumping in on their series maybe. And, um, and it's in two weeks, you know, you were given a little bit late notice and you're coming in in two weeks and it's mm-hmm. not a book that you're super familiar with, but you're attacking this text you're, or even a book, right? So you can preach that text. How, where does backgrounds fit in for you? Is this something that you suspend till later in the, in the sequence of addressing it? Or do you immediately start um, looking for things and does it just depend on which particular text it is? Like how, how would you go about that and kind of coach us on the role of, uh, backgrounds and, and just addressing a text in general? Um, yeah, I think the, um, that's a great question. Um, and that's the, you know, kind of the, where the rubber meets the, meets the road here. Um, one of the things in light of kind of what we just talked about, just the nature of historical background formation, it is helpful to note when we go to read a biblical text, um, it's helpful to recognize the amount, the vast amount of historical work that's already been done for us. Mm. So when I open my ESV or CSB, um, that text has uh, rests upon the scholarship of uh, lots of individuals who have done text critical work, who've done manuscript collation. So when I open my text, my Bible, there's already been a lot of historical work that's been done in order to allow me to read the text in my own language. Um, so in that sense, even if you were just taking a strictly textual focus, you could still, you could still advocate the value of historical research um, as you're doing that. But as, and when we're thinking about historical background formation and the uh, interpretation of the text, I think that in some ways, I think I'd want to say that historical background information is important, but secondary. Mm. Um, kind of syncing with what I said in just in general terms that history is necessary but not sufficient for the study of a biblical book because a biblical book is an act of written communication. Right. So in that sense, 
uh, historical background just because of what it is is not going to be sufficient for uh, that task. And so one of the ways to uh, recognize that reality is to prioritize the reading and rereading of the text and then ask the question, what do I need? Uh, what further work do I need um, to understand this text? Which most approaches do that, but it's helpful to self-consciously think through what is my priority here? Uh, and as a, a pastor or a student, um, you know, you have to prioritize your time as well. Right. So thinking about starting with uh, the reading of that text, um, I think, is uh, is is primary. To draw back to to uh, there's a category that uh, Brevard Childs use uses in uh, a number of his works, uh, thinking about when he's contrasting kind of a canonical approach with a historical critical approach. In a historical critical approach, the in the object of study is actually um, depending on what you're uh, working on is the uh, reconstruction of a time period or um, trying to establish an author's intention by uh, kind of reconstructing his thought world. Um, what, what Abraham, what a person in Abraham's day would have thought that kind of thing requires a lot of effort, but this would be treating the Bible as a source versus treating the Bible as witness. Yeah. Um, so when we treat the Bible as witness, this is where we're thinking through, okay, there's historical information here. There's background information here, but what is the author done in this particular text? So when I'm thinking about uh, understanding an author's intention, I'm thinking about not like figuring out what the author was thinking or, you know, what do you, uh, what he had for breakfast or something like that, right. to think his thoughts after him. I'm trying to understand what he has done in this particular text, in this particular act of communication because that's what we actually have. Right. Um, so I, you know, in that sense, I would advocate something uh, like historical background minimalism. Yeah. That's um, very where, uh, and part of that means that a lot of the historical background information that serves uh, the reading of the text is, is not done passage by passage. It's like, uh, you know, it's a, it's a prior study. So thinking through some of the issues of canon formation is actually going to essentially be the prep for a whole bunch of sermons. So right. like if I did, if I'm working through the shape of the old Testament, and the new Testament, how they fit together. Well, in some sense that's hermeneutical prior work, or sometimes that's historical work, but that's um, sometimes we think that's completely divorced from the uh, actually like doing a, sermon prep for a particular text hmm. but when you come to 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 work through a particular passage you're not just picking which uh area of your work that you're bringing into you're, you're bringing your entire training yeah. with you every time you go into your study or every time you uh, read a text so in some in some ways i think the the kind of historical background information that's most useful for reading biblical text is stuff that you're typically not doing on a week by week basis. It's those, it's those studies that you do that help you understand and give you an orientation to what's happening in, in biblical text in general, that then you're going to be able to intuitively understand uh, some of those things. Yeah. So kind of a historical background minimalism. Yep. Um, another category that is drawn from uh, literary studies 
uh, is the difference between a cultural encyclopedia mm. and an author's universe of discourse. So a cultural encyclopedia would be like, just like an encyclopedia implies, like it's, um, this was, you know, this old school thing is I remember when there's, uh, encyclopedia salesmen would come by the houses, um, you know, <laughs> they convinced us to buy some encyclopedias back uh, along. This was back in the late 1900s. Yeah. <laughs> My kids started calling, uh, uh, said that I was born in the 20th century and you know, asked me what life was like in the late 1900s. Yeah. Um, um, but just like an encyclopedia set, or if you think of cultural encyclopedias, like the amount of information you could find on the internet. Um, so the study of historical background information today is typically a Google search. Um, right. So it's just a vast amount of information. But if you're thinking about the cultural encyclopedia of Ephesus, um, well, that would include a whole host, uh, a never-ending uh, pursuit of uh, knowledge about ancient Ephesus. So that would be the cultural encyclopedia. The universe of discourse uh, is what it implies, like in a particular author's discourse. So like the letter to the Ephesians, mm -hmm. that has its own universe of discourse and thinking through, okay, what has Paul said in this letter? And that's going to already shape the types of historical work that you might have to do. Yeah. Um, so in one sense, it might be interesting to understand what was Ephesus like in the first four centuries uh, AD, but that's not really going to help you understand Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Right. Um, so that's a category that can kind of help, help you navigate uh, the things that you would want to uh, focus on are the things that uh, the author, the, the text that you're reading has chosen to focus on. So that is both uh, inclusive and also like what is omitted. So if Paul has chosen to uh, only mention something briefly um, or just to uh, vaguely refer to something, um, well, that it could be uh, that he wants you to go um, or that he doesn't know what's going on there or that, you know, he, he wants you to pursue that or he could be assuming that that is common knowledge, Yeah, but he's choosing to focus on, on something else. So thinking about the, the difference between a cultural encyclopedia versus the universe, universal discourse, that can kind of help you, um, Help, help you narrow down uh, what you're what you're needing to focus on or wanting to focus on uh, when you're thinking in this area yeah. when you're studying a particular text. Super helpful. I I would uh, as you're talking just universe of discourse. I a couple of years ago worked through and it became one of my favorite texts ever. I, I mean, obviously John is the book of John is incredible, but mm -hmm. chapter six I was working through it for a sermon and. Uh, Got to the point where Jesus, right? He he comes to the disciples and they Star Trek uh, across the um, across the sea, and and it's, it's Sea of Tiberius. And the question of the backgrounds is like, well, what you know? Maybe you could ask, well, how far did he go, right? Like, did he? I mean, how far mm -hmm. was the distance? And the and the more I just sort of wrestled with that, I was like, the issue is, it's really he doesn't even want to focus on that. The issue is, this is like the Exodus, um, and he's wanting you to read that with that as the background, and so the 
the greater it doesn't mean that the Sea of Tiberius and its size doesn't matter or isn't even available to us but rather right. that is not the focus of what John is angling at and he wants you to cut with his grain um and understand where where he's trying to take you so that ultimately yeah. that we would believe right and so i think what you're saying is is really helpful and and using the minimal uh word even of just saying you you do it as far as your your author is going to push you um you know to 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 understand what he's trying to do so mm-hmm. um yeah, i like the oh. illustration of uh like a painting yeah uh, someone has painted a picture and there's a spotlight uh and then the the uh, the painter needs to use shadows yeah. um, to highlight that. So one of the temptations of historical background formation is, is like um, to, to fill in all the shadows. And then unfortunately, if you do that, then you lose the emphasis yeah. that the author has spotlighted uh, yep. literally. Um, yeah. so it just changes. It changes what the, the picture looks like, what you see first and what you see second. Um is different um, when you start filling in or fiddling with those those details or the ratio of them. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, and, and you're mentioning this um, uh, like in sermons. I will see uh, pastors, preachers, and and I mean, I'm there's yeah, no disparaging here, and, and uh, but sometimes they do that. They're they're spending too much time about what is not in the text, um, and right. and then also commentaries. Frankly, will do that. They're not sticking as tightly to what is the communicated intent here um, and yeah. what, what do we how can we cut with this angle and it doesn't mean that that other stuff doesn't matter it's just what what you you only have one focus so how can what do you focus on yeah. and what do you develop there is is, is key well um, one of the things that um, oh I'm sorry but I was just going to say real quickly that one of the cautions that we have to have is that uh, especially if the sources that you're reading the resources they're good storytellers yeah, uh, historical background formation can be like methodologically and homiletically seductive yeah. in the sense of if you spent if you spent four hours of your uh, sermon prep uh, under you know figuring out the dynamics of this like super cool fort or fortress that right. was outside of Jerusalem. Well, man, when you're preaching that text, that's going to come in, right? Uh, you know, because it's a fort, but. Yeah. Um, uh, so where we spend our time in prep right. is going to spill over yeah. you know, in our sermons. Okay, brother. Well, thank you so much for joining us um, on the Biblical Theology Podcast. Thankful for you being on, brother. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate you letting me ramble on a little bit. No, that's great. This podcast is a product of Credo Magazine. For more resources like this, visit credomag.com. The theme song for the Biblical Theology Podcast is Space Cadet by Philanthropy and Sleepy Fish, provided courtesy of Chill Hop Music. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Sam Beerig and produced by Ben Van Holstein.